Well, once again, welcome. Whether you're at our Bellingham campus, our Ferndale campus, or watching online, I'm so glad that you're here with us. Hope that you'll just sit back and relax. I have lived in the Pacific Northwest since 1995. And in that amount of time, I have learned the following to be true. If you use the statement sunbreak and actually know what it is, you're probably from the Pacific Northwest. If you know at least 10 ways to order a standard cup of coffee, you are definitely from the Pacific Northwest. If you've ever stood on a deserted corner in the rain and waited for the walk signal to change, you are most definitely from the Pacific Northwest. If you can taste the difference between Seattle's best Starbucks and Woods without even trying, you are most definitely from the Pacific Northwest. If you can correctly pronounce Squim, Puyallup, Issaquah, Yakima, and Willamette, you are from the Pacific Northwest. In the winter, if you leave for work in the dark and return home from work in the dark and you only work eight hours, you know you're from the Pacific Northwest. If you can point to two volcanoes without actually being able to see them, you are from the Pacific Northwest. If you put on shorts at 50 degrees but still wear hiking boots and a parka, you know where you're from, don't you? Yeah. If you think umbrellas are for wimps and tourists, you are from the Pacific Northwest. If you've ever had to use your furnace and your air conditioner in the same day, you know that you're from the Pacific Northwest. And if you've ever repented before Jesus for throwing an aluminum cam in the trash, you are from the Pacific Northwest and you probably attend Christ the King Community Church. Amen? There you go. As a student of people in the Pacific Northwest, I have noticed that there are a lot of very nice people up here. People in the Pacific Northwest are relaxed. They're well-mannered, well-hydrated. They're caffeinated. They're organic individuals. They seem to pride themselves with being able to just kind of go with the flow. One of my favorite Pacific Northwest cultural moments actually happened to our uh, worship pastor, Sam Middlebrook. If you know Sam, you know Sam is from Texas. He is proud of the country of Texas, all right? <laughs> Well, Sam went to a Seattle Seahawks game actually wearing a Houston Texans jersey. In some NFL stadiums, that can get you killed. When you wear the opponent's jersey, that's a big... But you know, Sam's a big boy. He can take care of himself. So he put on his Houston Texans jersey and went to a Seahawks game. Sam told me that as he was entering the stadium, a man looked at him in his Houston Texans jersey, and this is what he said. I'm glad that works for you. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Seriously. Do you know, that's kind of what we see up here in the Pacific Northwest, don't we? Hey, if that works for you, cool. You know, I, I would never want to impose my belief system on anybody else. I, mean, I, I wouldn't want to be disrespectful. No, I, I've just found a way to kind of flow with the, with the river. I just kind of roll with the punches. I found a way to tolerate anything. And as long as that works for you, then that's just fine. I'll leave you alone, and you're never going to hear a word different from me. This weekend, we're going to look at what I call a beautiful lie. It's a beautiful lie because it really, really sounds good. It sounds so tolerant. It sounds so accepting. But if you listen to it, it also sounds lethal. Lethal. The lie goes like this. God grades on a curve. God grades on a curve. Let me put it to you another way. As long as you're nice, you're fine eternally. 
It's no big deal. Just be a nice person. That's it. The truth is, I never would have made it through my high school math classes without something called a bell curve. I mean, I loved it when Mr. Thorkelson took my 62 out of 100 and he put it on that bell curve and suddenly I was just better, right? My mark just suddenly went up. It made me feel good about my math skills even though I was terrible at math. And I always felt like I was lying just a little bit because suddenly the standard had changed. Instead of comparing myself to the answers, the black and white answers in the back of my math textbook, suddenly I was just being compared with everybody else in the class. I like the idea and the principle of a bell curve, but there's a spiritual problem that goes with that. If that's what we believe, it's this. is we enjoy comparing ourselves against other people. The problem is... The Bible wants us to compare ourselves against the standard that is Jesus. This lie comes in many shapes and sizes. Many of you have probably heard some of these expressions. I would call them the the lies about God and nice people. You've probably heard some of these before. One, One that goes like this. As long as we're sincere, it counts. As long as we're sincere, it counts. This expression of the lie can also be heard this way. You've probably heard people say it. I've tried my best. I've just done everything that I can to try and make God happy. I've done absolutely everything that I can. That's the justification we use to make ourselves feel better about our own human effort. But that's exactly the problem. See, our eternity doesn't hinge on our human effort. It hinges solely and completely on the finished work of Jesus that was accomplished on the cross. It's His effort, not ours. Here's the second way the lie comes out sometimes. It goes like this. As long as our good outweighs our bad, then we're good. This approach just turns life into a great big contest, right? We walk past the garbage can. We throw an aluminum cannon. It's just like, oh, that was bad. I got to do something good. Hey, you've got a nice shirt. Can I hold that door for you? I mean, let's just do something really nice. Can I give you a hug? And it turns it into a contest because also it's like one bad, but I got three good in, so God's got to notice that somewhere along the line, right? You know, we're driving down the guide. We cut somebody off, and it's just like, oh, no, I cut somebody off. I know what I'll do. I'll volunteer at the church. I'll cut my neighbor's lawn, and I promise God I'll stop watching Desperate Housewives Housewives for at least two weeks. (laughs) The goal of the contest is to make sure that there's more on the good side than on the bad side, because in our flawed minds, we think somehow God's just keeping track of that whole thing, and we just want to be the good people on the good side of things. How about this expression of the lie? A loving God would never send anyone to hell. Loving God wouldn't do that. Surely not. He wouldn't. He couldn't. He shouldn't. Right? Right? That's where it gets really, really tough. How about this expression of the lie? Only a narrow-minded Bible thumper would say that Jesus is the only way. This is the universalist approach to the lie. They say all roads lead to God. It's all the same. They're just different names. And as long as you're sincere, you can take whatever path you want to because a loving God would never send a sincere person to hell because after all, he knows they're just really, really, really nice people. This one's going to get tough just in case you're wondering how, what direction we're going. People, we're going to start squirming here in a couple of minutes. You know where I hear these lies the most often? I don't know where you hear them, but I hear them at funerals. I hear them at funerals when people are trying really, really hard. In fact, I have been at a funeral officiating when people have started to exert pressure on the pastor because they want you to say one thing. You're going to tell me straight up that my loved one is in heaven. Even though all the evidence is pointing the other direction, you're going to say it. You're going to sprinkle some clergy dust over top of this moment because I need to feel better. So if you have to, pastor, you lie. 
You lie so that I can feel better in this moment. People are grieving. They're trying to make sense of a tragedy. All they want to hear is that their loved one was a really, really good person and that somehow God's going to find a way to grade it on a curve so that everybody can be okay. See, this is where we get stuck. We get stuck with grandma, don't we? There's something deep inside of our soul that just says, no, God wouldn't draw the line there. No, 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 grandma was a nice lady. She did everything that she could. She did the best she could. She has to be fine. God couldn't possibly be a God of love if grandma didn't make it. And that's where the lie really, really gets real, doesn't it? I heard a story once about two evil brothers, and they were evil. They were rich. They used their money to keep their ways, their evil ways, from the public eye. They even went to church to make it look good. They thought they had everything just well because they actually paid off the pastor to kind of turn a blind eye to everything that was going on, and, and, and everything seemed to be fine until the pastor retired. The pastor retired, and a new one was hired. The new guy showed up, and he could see right through the brother's deception. He knew at the base of their soul they were evil. There was no other way to explain it. Well, the church was growing, and a fundraising campaign was started to build a brand new church building, and all of a sudden, one of the evil brothers died. The remaining brother sought out the new pastor. The day before the funeral, he handed him a check, and he said, here's the deal. I will pay off the balance on the building campaign if you'll follow one condition. Tomorrow, my brother's funeral, you're going to say that he was a saint. Well, the pastor's freaking out because to say that the evil man was a saint, that would have been just a bold-faced lie. But the pastor smiled, took the check, deposited it, and got ready for the funeral the next day. Next day at the funeral, the pastor stood up, said, I'm not going to lie to you. He was an evil man. He cheated on his wife. He abused his family. He gambled. He drank and was basically evil. But compared to his brother, <laughs> he was a saint. <laughs> right? You know, this is a tough lie because it would just be so much easier for us if it were true. But it's not. So we talked about the lie. Let's talk about the truth now. Let's talk about the truth about God and nice people, okay? Truth number one is this, if you're following along in your outline. Sincerity can never turn a lie into the truth. Maybe I need to say it again. Sincerity can never turn a lie into the truth. Somewhere along the faith journey, people started saying that as long as you were sincere, you could find your way to God and that God would accept you based on your sincerity. As long as you just tried really, 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 really hard, that was going to be the basis upon which God would either turn you away from heaven or accept you in. I know it may be hard for some of you to believe, but I actually got lost once, okay? Left my GPS at home. I, okay, I was lost. I was lost. But I'll tell you what, I was sincere in my effort. I was driving sincerely. I was looking for road signs sincerely. I mean, I was doing everything that I could. I was burning fossil fuel sincerely. I was ignoring Laurel's calls to stop and ask for directions sincerely. I mean, I was doing everything that I could, very well intended. I was even telling myself, I'm not lost. I'm not lost. I'm fine. I know exactly where I am. I just can't find it on a map right now at this particular time. The truth was I was lost. Laurel could see it. My kids could see it. I was lost. I was sincerely lost. 
In the Apostle Paul's writing in, to the Roman church, in Romans chapter 10, and this is what he says to a group of people who were sincere and yet they were st- still lost. The Bible says this, for I can testify about them that they're zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. He's saying, you're zealous, but you're lost. You you, you know your own good deeds, but you're still lost. I mean, God has a standard. You just supplemented your own. You just decided you're going to be the standard instead. They knew that God had a standard, but they exchanged the truth for a lie, that as long as they were sincere, that somehow it was going to count. Here's the second truth. This is a tough one to hear, but let's just walk through it together, that all our good is not good enough that all our good is not good enough. We don't like this one at all. I mean, we say to ourselves, but it's got to count for something. All the good stuff that I do, it's got to count for something. We start making a list. I open doors for people. I pick up trash off the street. I don't cuss much, you know. You know, I coach Little League. I gather little boys together in baseball uniforms, and, and I pray prayers that use words like kill and destroy, but I'm a good person down deep inside, you know. I'm good. I do good things. And we don't like it when the Bible says this in Isaiah 64. It says this, all of us have become like one who's unclean, and all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. We hear the Bible say that, and we just start screaming, but I'm a good person. Okay, when you say that, can I ask a question? In comparison to who? In comparison to who? By whose standard are you able to make that bold claim that you're good? You know, we can always find someone who's worse than we are, can't we? And we use that as a way to justify ourselves. We love to compare, compare down. Can I ask you, just Christ the King, can we just try something? How about comparing up? Are you still a good person when you compare yourself to the sinless perfection of Jesus Christ? So how are we doing now? Hang with me, okay? Romans 3 says this, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There's not one who does good, not even one. I mean, this is the bottom line. If God is the standard and He's perfect, we're all wicked. We don't like to say it, but it's true. I mean, if life is an old-fashioned Western, Jesus gets a white hat and a white horse, we all get black hats and black horses. That's the way it is, okay? We don't want to say that. We somehow want to find something good inside of us. The truth is there may be nothing good inside of us. That's what makes Jesus so unbelievable. Because everything that's inside of him is good and gracious and kind and true. And we need him in that moment because if sin separates from God, he's the only one that can make up the gap. That's the good news of how good Jesus actually is. I mean, I can just testify tonight. Anything good that ever comes out of me has nothing to do with me. It all has to do with Jesus because he's the only thing I know that is good. My prayer is that you know that too. 
For some of us, it just feels like, well, well if, if it's not worth doing anything good and it's all just garbage, why should I do it? That's the reason why it is so good. When we pursue good because of Him, instead of pursuing good because of us, we don't end up exhausted. We ended up, or we end up blessed. That's the difference. That's where the joy comes from. I spent years trying to be good. And then I figured out there's nothing good inside of me except for Jesus, so maybe I should just stick with the guy with the really big white hat. That would be good. Here's truth number three. God never sends anyone to hell. Actually, that choice is up to you. So you get to choose, and I know something as we talk about this. It's not politically correct to talk about hell. Tough. We need to talk about hell, and I'm going to tell you why, because hell is hot and forever is a very, very long time. That's why we need to talk about it. Jesus talked about hell because he didn't want anyone to actually perish and go there. Jesus wanted us instead to choose life. Listen to him. In John 5, 24, this is Jesus talking. He said this. He says, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He's crossed over from death to life. Here's the deal with God. God is a God of love, and we love that part of it, don't we? That God is a God of love. I mean, can somebody say amen to the fact that God's a God of love? That's a good thing, right? But I want you to know something else. Not only is God a God of love, He's also a God of justice. And love and justice need each other in order to keep it in the perfect balance that only God can have. We love the love part, the justice part, Oh, that's tough, right? We need to understand this. If you'll fill in this blank, it's so unbelievably important because we want you to know this. Love without justice is enabling. If you just have love, this is what it sounds like as a parent. It sounds like this. It's okay, sweetie. You can keep playing with the chainsaw. I understand. Go ahead. It's all good. This is what love sounds like when there's no justice attached to it. It's okay, sweetheart. The traffic will always stop for you. Let's play a game. You run out and touch the median and come back as fast as you can. It'll be fun. It's twisted, isn't it? I mean, can, can anyone imagine God saying, it's okay, just keep on sinning. Don't worry about it. We'll figure it out in the end. It's good. God loves us too much to do that. He loves us too much to allow us to just wander through life, trying to figure out, is this good enough? Okay, so love without justice is enabling. Here's the other part. Justice without love is brutal punishment. The scary thing is a lot of people have a picture of God this way. They picture God saying this, I saw you sin, you dirty little excuse for a human being. I'm going to punish you eternally. In fact, I choose extra crispy for you. <laughs> That's the way some people see God. They see him as this punishing God who just keeps heaping on the punishment, stopping on top of them, making them submit. I'm just going to make you squeal just a little bit more. That's the way they see him. Just so we know, 
Jesus loved us so much that he took the brutal punishment of sin that we deserved so that we didn't have to suffer that way. That's how much he loves you. He took your just punishment. He took mine. And believe me, of all people, I deserve it. He took the punishment of the cross so that we didn't have to. So if love without justice is enabling, justice without love is brutal punishment, what are we left with? Well, I believe we're left with this, and this is where the news gets so good. Love with justice, and justice with love, there's a word to describe it. It's mercy. It's mercy. The fact that Jesus took my sin, that he offered me love, that he paid the justice portion of my penalty with his life, that's where the mercy comes in. That mercy is what allows God to boldly stand and say, I am the only way, because I'm the only one that could do perfect love and perfect justice. No one else could. You know, people get angry when I say that Jesus is the only way. The truth is this. I actually didn't say that. He did. I'm just quoting him, okay? So if you've got a beef with me, it's not with me, actually. It's with him, and as I often say, you can write Jesus a letter, I'm sure he'd be happy to hear from you, okay? John 14, 6, he said this. Jesus said that he was the only way. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Knowing that he's the only way leads us to one conclusion when it comes to this lie, and the conclusion is this. If there is another way, Jesus died for nothing. If there is another way, Jesus' death, his atoning sacrifice, was absolutely a waste. Galatians 2.21 says this, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. If, you, if it could have been paid by just a whole bunch of really nice people doing a whole bunch of really, really nice stuff, the Bible says, then Jesus died in me. The verse is very clear. If you could do it by doing just by being nice. Then he died by nothing. So what are we left with? Well, I believe we're left with a tough and beautiful reality. Romans 6.23 gives us the tough reality, and it goes like this. Sin kills. Sin kills. The first part of Romans 6.23 says this, for the wages of sin is death. That's what we're supposed to get because we're sinners. But that is the best break in all of Scripture. The wages of sin is death because that's like a, oh, but while sin kills, Jesus saves. Jesus saves. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you notice eternal life doesn't say, because it doesn't come through your resume. It doesn't come through your school, Sunday school attendance record. It doesn't come through the fact that you recycle and you're just a really, really, really nice person from the Pacific Northwest. It says that eternal life comes through Christ Jesus our Lord. The writer of Hebrews has, says this. 
He says, just as a man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. When you get to the end of this lie, you're left with one imposing question. And the question is this, what's at stake if you buy the lie that God grades on a curve? I'll tell you what's at stake. Your eternal life is at stake if you buy that lie. That's a tough truth, but that's what it says. So I'm working through this one, and it's tough. Because we all so desperately... We just want it to work so easily, don't we? Come on, God, just lower the standard. Just, just kind of sweep them all in. That'd be good. That'd be nice. And we forget that the loving heart of Jesus appealed to every human being. Every single human being. When he said this in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is talking and he says this, Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate. Narrow is the way that leads to life, and only a few find it. So what's my point? There's only one gate. And it's small, and it's Jesus. And no matter how hard we try to be good enough, the beautiful truth is that we're never good enough, but He is always more than good enough. Always. As we get ready to close, I know I'm talking to a wide audience both here and in Ferndale and those that are watching online. I know that there are some who are sincerely nice people and may be deeply offended by the statement that I've made tonight that our good isn't good enough. My question to those of you who are offended is this. Are you willing to be offended to the point that you're willing to risk your own soul. My prayer is that you will cross the line of faith, that you will make that decision to be carried by God, to be carried by God. Now, I know some of you are sincerely nice and you love Jesus, but, but, but there's another whole piece that goes along with this. And the reality is that, that, that for some of us, we actually buy this lie at Thanksgiving every single year. You say, what? We gather all the people that we love, and we get them around a great big table, and we smile and we nod, and we know that they think they're really, really nice people, but we have never dared to open our mouth and to genuinely and compassionately share with them how Jesus has saved our soul. And in just hoping that they're going to be good enough and somehow that God's going to find a way 
to loophole them in. I'll tell you exactly what we're doing by deciding we're going to say nothing. By becoming mute about our faith, we're actually becoming complicit with the lie, and we're just hoping that maybe God will grade on a curve. Now, I freak out just a little bit when I say that because I have the picture of some of you showing up at your Thanksgiving table this year and going, you'll notice there's a black hat on your tape plate in front of you. Please put it on because my pastor told me to tell you that no matter how good you're trying, you suck. You're evil. You need to repent and come to Jesus because he loves you. Please don't do that. (laughs) But Christ the King, how many of us have bought this lie by saying nothing? How many of us have, have bought the lie by not going to the very people we love the most and saying, could we take five minutes? Could I share with you the story of a man a God-man who died in my place on a cross and who did the same for you. Can we not love them enough to share the truth, to expose the lie for what it is? Wherever you're at, however it is that you find yourself in this moment, My prayer is that the beautiful lie that God grades on a curve will be exchanged for the truth that while sin kills, Jesus saves. He saves. He saves. Would you pray with me tonight? In this moment, right here, as we're gathered in Bellingham, we're gathered in Ferndale, in this moment, if you're here and the reality is that you've bought a lie for a really long time, my prayer is that you'll ask God to forgive you for your silence that you'll ask Him to carry you to the truth so that you can be a truth-bearer. That you'd be willing to share the words of Jesus that says there's a very small, narrow gate. But I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if you want to come through the gate to my dad, you get to come through me. That I loved you so much that I was willing to pay the just penalty for your sin to set you free. God, I pray for those who who are here tonight and may not even know that Jesus is the way, that he has made up the gap. God, I pray that they would not walk out of this church or the Ferndale campus without knowing for sure that there is a moment in their life 
when they admitted before God that their good was not good enough, that they asked for His forgiveness, for His mercy, that they received it, that they were forgiven, and that they were washed as white as snow. So God, I pray for each of us as we struggle with this lie, Lord, as we try to wrap ourselves in the truth, God, I pray that many would come to know you, to love you, to reach for you, and to be carried by you as we celebrate the truth that Jesus saves. And I pray these things in your precious, holy, and matchless name. And the people of God agreed together and said, Amen.